Hey guys, Michael Cohen here with another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. If you happen to be listening on some sort of an Apple device, whether that's a phone, a tablet, or a laptop, please leave us a star review. Let us know what you like. Leave a comment. Five stars is greatly appreciated. And the better the exposure for the show, the easier it is for me to book some interesting guests and hopefully provide some fun conversations for you to listen to. For those of you who tuned in last week, it was one of our best episodes yet with journeyman quarterback Sage Rosenfels. Backup quarterbacks have the best stories in the NFL, and Sage did not disappoint. So tune in if you want to hear about what it was like to play with Brett Favre, Andre Johnson, to play for Steve Spurrier and Nick Saban at the NFL level, and what it was like to go through the NFL draft process as one of the top quarterbacks coming out of college that year. Sage ended up being a fourth-round pick for the Washington Redskins and was, I believe, the fifth quarterback taken that year in a draft that had Michael Vick and Drew Brees. So there's all kinds of cool anecdotes there. Once again, before we get into today's show, I have to bring you our sponsor, and that is drinkvirtually.com. That's drinkvirtually.com. If you're like me, it's getting rougher and rougher to be indoors every weekend during quarantine. You want to be out with your friends or with your family having a great time, having a few drinks and playing those games that we all play in social settings. Well, for now, the place to do that is drinkvirtually.com. There's no credit card required, no sign-in, no username, no nothing. You just go to drinkvirtually.com, and there's all kinds of fun games to choose from, whether that's Kings, Ride the Bus, Screw the Dealer, Higher or Lower, or Wombat, which is now the most popular game on the site. It's a cross between Apples to Apples and Cards Against Humanity, where everybody on your Zoom chat or your Google Hangout or your FaceTime, whatever video program you use, you all compete against each other with these outrageous challenges that will leave everybody laughing and probably sipping their drinks a little bit more than they normally would. So be sure to check out drinkvirtually.com, and as always, Please drink responsibly, and don't forget to tip your dealer. Now, today's episode of the show is a little bit different than the last couple. We've heard from NFL coaches, and of course, we heard from Sage Rosenfels, as I mentioned off the top. But this week, we're going to hear from one of the preeminent NFL writers in the country, and that's Sports Illustrated senior writer, Greg Bishop. Greg and I have been friends for a long, long time. He went to Syracuse a number of years before I did and became you know, an amazing mentor to me, teaching me different things about reporting and helping my writing and sourcing and all kinds of stuff. And so I'm forever indebted to Greg for all of the help that he has given me. Uh, for those of you who might not be familiar with Greg, probably the most recognizable thing that he does every year is the Super Bowl cover story for Sports Illustrated. So if you're a subscriber to the magazine or if you've seen the iconic photos of a magazine cover after the Super Bowl, Greg is the one that has written that story for the past five, six years. Uh, he's amazing at it, among other things. And so be sure to check out some of his work if you're interested. Prior to his time at Sports Illustrated, he was at the New York Times for a long time, started out covering the New York Jets as a beat writer in the NFL, and then became sort of a, a jack of all trades where he was doing investigations and features and analysis pieces, traveling all over the world covering the Olympics and major tennis events and national championships in college football and college basketball. He's covered a World Cup. He's done just about everything and has had the opportunity to be around some of the athletes that we would put in in the upper echelon of fame in our country. And so because of that, he's got some of the more unique and, and rare stories to listen to in this business that provide a lot of insight into some of the figures that we read about and watch you know, every week on television. So hopefully you guys will enjoy it. And without further ado, let's get into a conversation with Sports Illustrated senior writer Greg Bishop. 
Well, Greg, thank you for taking some time to uh, to join me. I really appreciate that. It's obviously a time where everyone is kind of on edge and hectic a little bit, so it'll be fun to, to catch up and swap a few stories here. Um, before we get into some of the, the really fun football stuff and, and other sports that you've covered over the years, I do have to ask you about two of the stories that you've you've actually written and penned since all of the COVID-19 coronavirus stuff happened. And, and the first one was way back on March 5th, with which in terms of like how things have happened, it feels like that was about 30 years ago. Um, but on March 5th, you wrote this story um, about being in the epicenter of the coronavirus for the United States. And, and obviously you didn't travel to the middle of it. It's, it's your hometown. It's the suburbs of Seattle. And so you wrote about what it was like to be in the same town or within a mile or so of the life center of Kirkland, where all of this was happening, the life care center of Kirkland. So what was that like when, when you first started to hear about coronavirus in the United States and then realizing that it was, you know, 5,000 feet away from you down the road? <laughs> well, thank you for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. Uh, it's going to be tough to follow stage, but we'll try our best here. Uh, let's see. That story was actually pretty funny, like how it came together. You know, essentially, I was going to Portland uh, for the weekend with my son, Blake, uh, I had planned the trip for a while. This was back when you could still travel, when people there was no stay-home order. And I was going to visit with my friend from college, Eli Saslo, and his family, and then go see my brother. And before we left in the morning, I went for a run. Now, many people since have fact-checked this story and said essentially that there's no way I was running, so they stopped reading right at the first paragraph when I mentioned the jog. But I went on a loop that I take normally, and it actually took me right by that nursing home. And I didn't think anything of it. Everything was fine. And then we were at the Saslow's the next day. And uh, I was looking at my phone and there was an alert. And all of a sudden I see from the New York Times, Life Center, Life Care Center of Kirkland. And I said, what? <laughs> you know, like not only do I live near there, I was literally like outside of it the day before. And so, um, you know, that was really surreal. I think what we're experiencing out here is that, you know, this is basically – um been a much longer game here you know I, I think we've been pretty much in the house and following the cdc guidelines for roughly two months now at this point you know we um i think the last time i went out to dinner like to a restaurant was around valentine's day and wow. so you know you just kind of get you just kind of get used to it you know we've been spending a lot of time with our two-year-old i mean at least he's never dull and you know, people here, I think there's an added layer of like so many people have died at the nursing home that you have to think about it. And, you know, one of Blake's favorite parts, parks is this beach area right by there. Like we haven't been going there. He loves to go to down to the beach and throw rocks in the water. And it's just, you know, you got to take an extra layer of precaution, I think. So it's, those are the two things I think are a little bit different. Um, definitely been a long, long time since we've been following these rules. And you know, you're definitely a little bit wary just knowing that so many people have gotten it so close to where you live. Well, it was it was interesting rereading the story last night because I read it when you first wrote it. Like I said, on March 5th was when it published. But then rereading some of the quotes or some of the descriptions from local sports teams in the Seattle area that you talked to was really interesting. You know, the, the Mariners, for example, said that they, quote, fully expect to play baseball, end quote, at the time of their home opener on March 26th, which, again, so much happens in about the 35, 36 days since you wrote that story that it now seems crazy. And there was an anecdote in there about the Washington, University of Washington basketball team getting ready for the Pac-12 tournament in Las Vegas. I was actually in Las Vegas the day that that team arrived, and they were staying at the same hotel that I was. I was at the tail end of my trip at the MGM Grand on vacation with a buddy of mine, and the last two days we were there, a Sunday and Monday, 
the University of Washington basketball team was in our hotel. So it was it was crazy to like see that anecdote in your story and then have that connection where I was actually around these guys. And now, just 35 days later, it's crazy to think that high school sports thought they were going to happen. College sports thought they were going to be able to continue. So I guess the question I have now is, given that you guys were in this so early, how has it shifted in the last 35 days, in other words, as you see other parts of the country like New York or Los Angeles or even Washington, D.C., where I am, these other epicenters in terms of the congestion and number of cases, what has it been like for Seattle to kind of watch that from afar as, as attention shifted to other parts of the country? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think the big thing here is that people have been doing a good job of following the rules. You know, I, we actually did leave the house yesterday and the signs on the freeway all say like death numbers are down keep it up washington and there's like a certain spirit that you see here that maybe uh, will be adopted elsewhere that it's partly due to the amount of time we've all been living in our houses and kind of stuck at home you know um my wife and her friends they have started like making different dishes and like they drop them at each other's houses you know like drop them on the porch and you pick them up and everybody gets to you know, try different food exchange. You know, what you see a lot of is, you know, people doing these Zoom happy hours or, you know, using the happy hour app and getting together with their friends virtually. Uh, you know, obviously works had to be done remotely. And I, I think what you've seen is a real kind of spirit settle into people here. Like, they, it seems like people are taking it seriously, like they want the numbers to go down. And what's happened here and in places like California is you've seen the, the numbers really drop, you know. And I think that that's because of how seriously people have been taking it. You know, I, I think obviously a place like New York, and we lived there for a long time, my wife and I, and it's just more difficult to get around and move without bumping into other people. But, right. you know, I can't, I haven't been around um, my friends, you know, I haven't seen barely anybody, you know, it's just, you just see the same two people day after day after day. And I think getting in, in front of that was, was uh, important. You know, and to your point you made about how much things have changed, it's crazy to think back to that because, I remember reaching out to the teams and the Seahawks basically just laughed. They were like, why, why are you writing about this crazy coronavirus? I mean, they, they, they made it seem like it was like almost alarmist to ask them if they were going to have any precautions. And that same weekend, the Sounders played a home game. And it was, you know, I mean, it, it looks actually pretty irresponsible in hindsight, but at that time, nobody could have known. You know, we were a week away from when all the craziness really went down. And so, you know, here I still see people outside. I still see people walking their dogs or walking around with their kids or taking hikes. But, you know, for the most part, it, it is really empty and there aren't a lot of people, you know, who aren't following the rules. And I think that started early. You didn't see people packed into bars the way that you did uh, in videos on Twitter. You didn't see, you know, people openly flaunting the restrictions the way you did on some social media. What you saw are people who took it serious and, you know, hopefully that's had an impact. Yeah, I think I think Washington, D.C. and the DMV area was a little bit slow to react and we were one of the the states that didn't have a stay-at-home order until after you know dozens of others had already put something similar in place and and so in dc it was a case where people were going out and going to parks and going to see the cherry blossoms by the monuments and then those who live in virginia were still going to the beach and it was just kind of a, a situation where i feel like until somebody you knew got it or a family member or some you know first degree of separation to you it, there were a lot of people, I think, in this particular part of the country that didn't take it seriously. And so one of the things that caught my attention, and you ended up writing a story about it after this came out, was a video online from the NFL agent, Buddy Baker. You know, you and I have both covered the NFL for a while. And so 
Buddy is a name that is familiar to those of us in the business. Represents guys like Doug, Doug Baldwin, Jack Boyle, the Griffin twin, uh, Jack Doyle, excuse me, the Griffin twins out in Seattle. And so he posted this video that was basically like pleading with people to to follow the rules and do what they can. And the reason for that was a haunting reason. So I'll let you pick up the story from there. Yeah, this this is the kind of story that'll break your heart. But you know, Buddy Baker's parents met. Uh, when they were kids, they were teenagers in Long in Queens, New York, and they fell in love, and they got married, and they had 51 wedding anniversaries, and they were in love from the minute that they met all the way until the the minutes that they died. And you know, essentially, these these guys, uh, Buddy was saying that they weren't just like you know uh, husband and wife who spent a lot of time together; that they rarely were not in the same room when they were home. They, they were literally by each other's side for most of their lives. And he would say, he said that his dad would say sometimes, like, where's your mother if he wasn't in the same room as her for, you know, even 10 or 15 minutes. And, you know, they both entered March very healthy. They both uh, got sick. The father first very quickly uh, ended up in the hospital, ended up on a breathing tube. Uh, the mother then got sick, ended up in the hospital, ended up on a breathing tube. And, because they both uh, deteriorated so rapidly, you know, the family made the difficult decision to have them taken off the respirators. And they actually died in the same hospital room, holding hands uh, six minutes apart. And so in, in some ways it reminded me of the notebook, you know, uh, but except it's real life. And to the point you made a, a second ago, like to me, this is, this is when you really begin to take it seriously. Like we probably should have been before, but you know, I now know people who are sick, you know, friend from college has coronavirus, uh, friend's wife has COVID-19 and they're dealing with it. And you can see up close just how, you know, bad the symptoms really are, how sick they really seem. And then to talk to a guy like Buddy, who's who I've known for a while, who I really respect, you know, he's the kind of agent, he's not like a huge, you know, big company, but he's very personal with his guys. They all have these sort of great relationships and, you know, to watch how he's dealing with it and then to see him, you know, muster the courage to put this story out there because he wants people to take the guidelines and precautions seriously. I mean, I, I just thought it was really brave and courageous of him and hopefully a reminder to people that this is not something that's going on somewhere else. You know, it's happening right here. It's happening to his parents. You know, he said he said he's not the he he, he thought it would it will never happen to me. And then it did. And so hopefully people can take something from that for sure. Yeah, the video went viral on Twitter with just thousands and thousands of likes and retweets and things. And again, this is the type of thing where when you watch it, it, it hits home and makes you think, okay, if this can happen you know, to him where his two parents who were totally healthy at the beginning of March pass away within a matter of weeks, within minutes of each other, partly because of that close relationship that you mentioned. I'm sure they transmitted it one to the other because they spent so much time together, which is part of the reason why anybody in a household that does have it, you know, I was listening to a, an episode of, of The Daily, the New York Times podcast, like a week or a week and a half ago, where they talked about how, you know, one member of a family had it and, and the husband was quarantined in a bedroom and, and the wife and daughter were like, leaving food for him outside the door and then he would put the dishes back out when he finished and they had to like wash him in bleach right away and so you know it's it's strange and I've talked to a lot of my friends about this how if you don't have it and you're healthy and you're following the rules it's like you're staying inside and you have no concept of what's actually going on but then if you are in the world 
where you're unfortunate enough to have it or know somebody who has it. It's like a totally different ball game. So it's this weird kind of dichotomy where it doesn't seem real, but then you know that it's also very real. And then when this all is over, those of us who are lucky enough not to be afflicted with it, we're going to come out and it's going to be like nothing really ever happened, even though there was mass devastation and destruction and sadness. And so it's it's this weird dynamic that I, I've talked about a lot with my friends and my mom, who's a nurse and works at a hospital where there's cases and, and she's been exposed to it and has to monitor for symptoms and all that kinds of stuff. It's just, it's a very strange time. And, you know, for, for sports in particular, I, I'm guessing you didn't anticipate writing a story like that when this year started and you began planning, you know, some things you wanted to work on, but hopefully sports can get back to normal soon because it's just strange. It's strange. I'm curious, you know, I don't have kids and I don't have anybody around me my age that has kids that are old enough to kind of understand it. Have you tried to explain this at all to Blake? And like, does he get it at all what coronavirus means or why you have to stay inside? You know, I don't think he gets the severity of it, but we have tried to talk to him about it, you know, in part because a lot of the things that he loves to do, he can't do anymore. Like, you know, one thing, I like to take him to the mall on Saturday morning, not because we go shopping, but it's like this huge empty space and it just gives him like room to run. They've got little chess boards in part of it. They have a uh, playground in part of it. So he's always like mall daddy, let's go mall. And you have to explain to him like our sort of standard line that we've told him is, you know, people are sick, you know, so these things are closed. He likes a lot of those like little gyms, you know, they call them my gym or, you know, uh, jumping beans, and they, they're just little, like, play spaces where kids can run around, but they're also, like, petri dishes for germs, you know, and there's just a million kids there. They're all sick. They all have been through a bunch of stuff, and so, um, yeah, we try to explain to him that people are sick, and that's why it's disrupting some day-to-day life, but I don't think that he necessarily understands that, you know, um, on any sort of real level in terms of just how many people are sick. You know, actually, this is, a, this is an interesting anecdote. Yesterday, I went with him to see my grandma. She's in a nursing home that's not far from um, the one that where a lot of people died. And it's one town to the south. And, you know, people in her nursing home have been affected. They've been infected. And, you know, she can't leave her apartment. So she gets three meals a day. She's in her 80s. Uh, she's not doing so great in the, you know, general scheme. And so, it's just, it was weird. We went to the alley outside her apartment. We waved to her and talked to her briefly. And, you know, he kept screaming, I love you, Gigi. And then, you know, we went to to do a fake Easter egg hunt and she went back inside, you know. And so I think that on some level, he knows it's different and that life is different and will be for a while. But, you know, he's still a crazy kid most of the time, too. <laughs> Yeah, understandable, understandable. It's 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 just weird. It's a it's like being in a you know one of my friends texted it to me and he said this is the kind of thing that happens once every hundred years. So nobody really knows what it, what to do or how you handle it or anything. And I hadn't really thought about it in terms of a historical perspective until he sent me that message. And and it's true. Like we we probably won't see anything this massive or with this much unpreparedness on a national level for for quite a while. And so, you know, for those people who listen to the first couple episodes of the show, you know, when everybody's sitting around at home and, and not really having a lot to do, I decided it would be a good time to kind of start up this podcast and reach out to people with interesting stories or interesting athletic careers or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, for those who aren't too familiar with, with your career, obviously,
obviously spent a lot of time at the New York Times, now at Sports Illustrated, also the Seattle Times, way back when you were a young little whippersnapper coming out of Syracuse. Um, but you had some amazing opportunities to, to travel the world and be around some of these incredible athletes. And so your perspective would be different than, you know, the likes of Sage Rosenfels, who was on the last podcast, or the two coaches, former NFL coaches I had on earlier. But one of the similarities between you and Sage is that he was a teammate of Ricky Williams, and you wrote an unbelievable story about Ricky Williams, which is one of my favorite pieces that you wrote. And so the the premise of it is that Ricky Williams, you know, former Heisman Trophy winner, former All-Pro running back, leaves football and just sort of immerses himself in this wanderlust lifestyle where he's traveling the globe, going to all these different conferences and all these different events and all these different sort of you know, like uh, just just showcase features for products and all of the products and all the conferences and all the events, the majority of them have to do with marijuana or CBD or cannabis and, and all the products related. So, you know, for, for a guy that is a polarizing figure to begin with, can you kind of tell me a little bit about how that story came together and, and sort of what Ricky Williams is, is all about now as a guy that so many football fans, you know, remember, but kind of one of those where are they now type of deals? Yeah, you know what's funny is the the first time I met Ricky Williams, uh, I actually did a story on him for the New York Times, and he was in Miami, and he was trying to come back, I, I believe, uh, or he was already in the middle of his comeback to play football. And one thing that we did for the story is he gave me a massage because it was partly about him and him learning to be a massage therapist, and he was going for school for it while trying to come back and play in the NFL. So that's like the, probably the most awkward way you can start any relationship. Yes. Right? Like, I mean, yes. Like, you just met the guy, uh, you know, we're doing it for a story. It's forced as is. And yeah, it was kind of an interesting deal. And so, you know, from that, I got to know his people. I got to know him a little bit. And we kept in some, I would guess I would call it light touch, you know, from there on out. And, you know, eventually we, we started uh, talking a little more about doing something again. Like I knew he was getting deep into the cannabis space. Uh, I knew that people would be interested in hearing from him because there was a, a great 30 for 30 on him, Run, Ricky, Run, but it had been a little while since he'd done anything else. And, you know, I just felt like he was always going to be interesting. And so one of his people reached out to me about doing something, and then we started talking about the parameters, and it quickly became clear that the best way to do the story was to go to this this conference in Spain called Spanibus Cup, like Cannabis Cup, but in Spain. And... You know, he had partnered with this company called Weed Maps, which is an app where you can find different dispensaries. And they ended up taking their whole crew out there, and we ended up going on what was one of the crazier um, assignments I've ever been on. I mean, we were with Ricky in Barcelona for three days. I don't think any of us even slept. And, you know, we, we, we saw the conference every day. We learned a lot about his industry, and he had a lot of fun at night, too. And so it was pretty... Uh, it was pretty wild. Those are the kind of ones that you don't get to do very often. And, you know, I, I remember uh, with the video crew looking at them sometimes saying, is this real life? <laughs> I mean, this is like our job, you know? It was it was uh, surreal from, you know, we, we shot it one morning um, at, like, sunrise on the beach, you know? And we, not, we had gone straight from, like, this uh, social house thing that he was hanging out at to, like, go shoot him, and he was doing yoga poses on the beach and i remember just looking at the ocean thinking like this isn't real <laughs> this is this is a strange life that we live well it reminded me you know reading some of the descriptions of this spanibus convention which you know in my head the first image i had was kind of like you know 
people who talk about a pharmaceutical convention or any of these massive conventions that they have in Las Vegas and places like that where anybody and every vendor you can imagine is just trying to promote their product or generate business or there's people there trying to meet vendors and make connections and things. And so the image I had in my head was that. And then reading the story, it shifted to a combination of one of those conventions plus like the last the very last scene of the movie Beer Fest where they talk about going to Weed Fest with, uh, you know, and and it's just like, I don't know. I mean, so what what was it like to be at this convention? I mean, had you ever experienced anything like a Spanibus environment? You know, I never went to Comic-Con in New York, but like I would see the people when I lived there. You know, and I lived in the East Village. So, you know, Comic-Con, you just see all these people in Santa outfits kind of running around. You'd see... Um, you know, people in superhero outfits, you'd see people like in Marvel character outfits and in the Santa con, I mean, was the one with all the Santas and you would see like sort of strange gatherings that you knew were not really about trading business secrets or finding the meaning of life. And this is kind of what that reminded me of. I mean, there were definitely people there that were very serious about weed and CBD that were breaking down turpines and you know, uh, flavor profiles and different healing modalities, you know, all these kind of things that Ricky's really into. And then there were people there that were just getting high constantly. I mean, everywhere you walked, people were smoking, um, different, uh, there were different booths. And instead of having like trade shows or like this company or that company, they would have different, you know, ways of consuming cannabis. There were drinks, there was food, there was, you know, bongs, there were, dabs there was everything you could imagine under the sun and you know at the weed maps tent they had their own sort of little area they had samples and all those guys were you know getting down all day long and so it was it was like uh i I described in the story as comic con for weed and this was kind of what it felt like to me like here was this scene that was like you know people were taking it seriously but they were also having a really good time and you know, we even went to one party, I remember, at this mansion that was sponsored by a different group. I can't even remember the name of it now, but it was like, you know, at this huge mansion, super opulent. There was caviar, I remember, and like oysters and like the really nice buffet. And then there was like a bong station. And it was like, <laughs> you know, somebody standing next to a bong and people just went up and did their thing. And then they'd like go back to this opulent party and they're all dressed up and stuff. And so... Yeah, it was super eye-opening and kind of hard to capture because you didn't want it to feel like you were exaggerating what happened, but it was hard not to give it this sort of fantastical, whimsical feel because it felt that way, you know? It was really different. Well, part of the reason I wanted to discuss this story, in addition to it being, you know, one that I just really liked, was that the new CBA for the NFL has has laxed the punishments for positive marijuana tests and now players won't be suspended but they're still subject to fines and entering into the substance abuse program and things like that and so I've covered the NFL I've talked to guys about marijuana obviously you have for this story and for others the part of the the article I think that resonated with me the most other than the sheer ridiculous descriptions of the conferences that you were just talking about but I thought it was fascinating that he really didn't like or at least wrestled with the idea that people thought of him as a pothead, not necessarily because they were wrong in that like he did smoke a lot of weed, but that the connotations of a pothead and then here's this guy that's going, you know, almost it feels like headfirst cannonball style into the marijuana business, despite really disliking that label was very interesting to me. So can you kind of explain a little bit why he didn't like being associated with that, even though he was kind of forcing himself into that field economically? 
Yeah, that's a great question, and I love it because it's going to lead to a little cross-promotion. But let me start with what you asked here. Um, I think what Ricky struggled with was the negative connotation of the label more so than the label itself. Like, I don't think he really cared that he was defined as a pothead or a person who was, you know, really into cannabis. I think it bothered him that people then took that sort of idea of him to extend that he was too lazy to be a great football player, that he didn't work hard enough, or that, you know, that that his issues were from anything other than what they were from, which was he had a social anxiety, he didn't like to impress, and he loved football, but he didn't love the machine, machinery around football, which I found to be pretty typical for guys who were right. shy or anxious or dealing with stuff. Jake Locker is another guy who doesn't, to my knowledge, you know, do cannabis at all, who had the same sort of feeling. He just didn't like the machinery. He didn't want to be a star. You know, they both loved the game itself. And so I think Ricky really struggled with, like, being defined in a way where he was the poster child for, like, pro sports laziness you know this idea that he had gone to australia and just quit football because he wanted to get high and he didn't care about his family or life or any sort of you know um, real goals or expectations you know and that he was sort of like a football peter pan and you know ricky's a lot of things including you know very interesting and one thing he's definitely not is lazy he does a lot of different things he was saying now he I, i just interviewed him for our skype uh, over Skype for our TV arm. And it was like last week, it should be out pretty soon. And he was saying that, you know, now he's even studying to be a, you know, family marriage counselor. So he's like a licensed massage therapist. Interesting. He, he can read astrology charts now as a side business that he does. He uh, says he meditates with his family every morning and they're thinking about trying to monetize that in a way where people start their day with something that clears their head. And you know, I just think that he's, he, he in many ways is a poster child for like, you know, people that enjoy cannabis that still go out and live normal full lives. You know, he plays different sports in his spare time. When, when we were with him, he was playing adult softball in Austin, which was a pretty crazy to watch him roll up there, you know, high and like, you know, hit home runs against some guy wearing jeans with a beer belly hanging <laughs> over his, you know, hanging over his belt. And, uh, you know, I just I always found him to be a really fascinating guy who shouldn't be pigeonholed. And one thing we did talk about on the the uh, interview, which should be out in the next week or two, was uh, that he feels like he deserves a little bit of credit for the way the CBA has changed. That like he took some hits and he missed some games and he was suspended for things that now players cannot be suspended for. And so I asked him on the podcast, would he rather be known for that or for being a great running back? And I thought his answer was really interesting because there are fewer people known for being the, the the sort of figurehead for the NFL's inching into like the rest of the world and how they view you know cannabis and positive tests. And he's saying there are more great running backs in the world than there are people that have had that kind of different and very specific impact. And True. He said he he thinks that if he had continued playing, he would have numbers that are close to the. Hall of Fame worthy, but that he'd rather be known as a trailblazer who stayed true to himself, who helped other players, and who ultimately changed a policy that, you know, in in many ways is thought to be draconian or, you know, at least um, not up to date with the science in terms of, you know, opioids, addiction, and the stuff these guys were given for years that they were told to take that, you know, had a, a terrible impact on their lives as well. Yeah, my, my experience in Green Bay was was very interesting when it came to marijuana and football players because Wisconsin is and was a state where marijuana is still illegal in all capacities. And so there were a lot of times where I broke news about players 
testing positive or news about players getting arrested for possession of marijuana or whatever the case may be. There were times where I smelled it in a guy's locker. And, and it was it was interesting because fans would always just rip me like no other and saying, why are you wasting your time reporting on this? You know, weed's not that bad, blah, blah, blah. And I couldn't agree more in terms of weed not being that bad. I have no issues with it. I understand some of the medicinal benefits of it. I've got no problem with it. But as long as it's a violation of league rules, it's my job to report on it was always my my sort of comeback to that. And and I'm curious, from, from your perspective and from players you've talked to and also just seeing the way the league has changed and started to become more progressive and also as a country, the way acceptance of marijuana has become more widespread, do you ever foresee 10, 20, 30, however many years from now, do you foresee a situation where potentially you know, marijuana is actually prescribed by team doctors the way that for the last 20 to 25 years it's been such a heavy... Uh, painkiller prescription and Toradol usage and things like that. Could you ever see it shifting to where marijuana becomes like a a drug of uh, of of choice, so to speak, for the NFL for players who are dealing with concussions or pain and things like that? You know, it's a great question, and there's a lot of layers to it. I, I would start with saying I think a lot of this is generational, right? So, I think when you're looking at a stance that was very anti-cannabis, that very much, you know, painted it in a, you know, sort of uh, hysteric terms, you know, reefer madness kind of deal. You're looking at policies made by older white dudes, you know, who come from a generation when this was thought to be this really terrible thing. You know, and I think what you're seeing on the flip side of that is a lot of medicinal benefits that have been used by doctors to help cancer patients, for instance, or people with epilepsy or people with Alzheimer's or, you know, it's just. It's become pervasive in the scientific community because they think that it helps. Now, there's a gap between the generational part of it and the scientific part of it that needs to be closed, you know, because we just don't quite know exactly how all this stuff works. We have a lot of anecdotal evidence, and there's a lot of thought that there is a lot of healing powers that are contained within, you know, the many, many, many hundreds of compounds that are in any one, you know, um, part of marijuana. And I think what what you're going to see in the years to come are a lot of real medical studies that will either prove or disprove some theories that are out there. The more that they prove, the more likely that scenario is because once they can show that like one, you don't have to smoke it, you know, it might be applied in creams. That's something Goodell always says. You don't want to be smoking, you know, like that's a bad deal. Like that's just sort of an outdated line of thinking, you know, like you, it could be put into creams. It could be used in gels. It might be ingested in capsule form. But, you know, the idea would be if they can prove that it's safer than opioids, we know the addiction rate is far lower. You know, we, we know that people aren't going out and, you know, doing the things they're doing to procure opioids with pod. And you just sort of know that the the mindset and general feeling about it has changed. And so can they figure out if these things are true? Can they get delivery models that, you know, give somebody the the, the benefits without, you know, wrecking their lives? And then can can those studies lead to policy changes? I think there's like steps involved there, but could I see it? Yeah, for sure. Because one thing we know about NFL players is that they are in constant pain, you know, like there's no, nobody goes through a whole season without hurting, you know, and they, they're just not, you know, they're not doing something the human body is supposed to do. And so if you're going to hit line up and hit each other hundreds of times every day for months on end, you're going to need something to deal with it. And, you know, I know NFL players that have, you know, had real problems with opioids. I know NFL players that have, you know, that won't touch cannabis. And I, I know other guys that swear by it. But 
I think the idea should be like whatever the doctors think, whatever the science proves, like they should lean on that because to me that's when you start to get the best results for these guys. And if it happens to be cannabis, then, you know, I, I don't see any reason why they can't shift the policy once they know a little more, a little more concretely. Yeah, the reason I brought that up is because, you know, another story of yours that I wanted to talk about sort of relates in that you wrote this story in 2016 where you followed four guys kind of every Monday through the first two-thirds or three-quarters of a season and just asked them what their bodies were like essentially every Monday the day after they go through all these car crashes on national television. And so I was reading these again to get ready for this podcast and I started thinking, okay, here's the Ricky Williams story that I just read. And then the order I happened to read it in was that this story about NFL Mondays and these, quote, get right days, end quote, as the players describe them to get their bodies back together. I started thinking, you know, would any of these four guys that you talk to, um, you know, Allen Robinson, Cameron Jordan, Justin Forsett and Ryan Harris, would they be interested in smoking marijuana? Do they smoke marijuana? Would it help them? Would it not help them? And so how did you come up with the idea to sort of follow these guys every Monday? And were you kind of uh, surprised at all about just how rough of shape some of them were in? Because I had covered the league for two years, I think, by that point when your story came out. And so I had been around guys on Monday, were in the locker room on Monday talking to players, but even I was kind of taken aback by just how gruesome and how um, difficult it was for some of these guys to get out of bed, having been around NFL players every day for two years. Oh yeah, 100%. That story totally shocked me because I knew they were hurting and I knew that they, I mean, the reason I wanted to do it is I wanted to kind of show in a more visceral way, like what, what these guys were feeling, you know, like it less like, you know, there's a, a lot of writing about the NFL that just calls it brutal or just sort of lists the injuries. Like this less that sort of digs into like, what does it feel like to run into someone else at full speed over and over your whole life? And, you know, I had this sort of idea that if I walked through a whole season with guys, I'd at least catch them at moments when they were less than superhuman. You know, they weren't when they when they were like at a vulnerable place needing to like get help. And what shocked me about the story is just how much they all were hurting and how much their pain really tied with how they played or whether they played at all. Like it was a direct line between how they were feeling and what happened to them. For instance, Justin Forsett was really banged up going into the year. He was hurt. He was uh, struggling. And I think three or four games in, the Ravens cut him. You know, And then by the time he healed, the Lions picked him up and he got another start. And this was kind of the beginning of the end of his career. But you, know, you could see directly that his injury was tied to his job security and that when he was hurt, he wasn't playing. And then he got cut, and then he got better, and he got a job again. So that was not surprising. You know, somebody like Cam Jordan was banged up the whole first half of the year. He played great in the second half. And as he started to tell me, every week I would ask these guys, what was their pain level? How injured were they? And if they were up around like 6, 7, or 8 in terms of a scale of 10, then you'd start to see them not have as good of games. And if they were lower, like 3, 4, 5, you know, then – you'd see Cam Jordan start to pick up his play. And the the saddest one for me was Ryan Harris. This guy played t- tackle for the Steelers. He was a, he was the left tackle on Denver's Super Bowl team. And he's a really nice guy, great guy, works in radio now. He basically, like, had an abscess on his shin that looked like a baseball, like a hairy baseball, and it kept getting bigger week after week. And this actually is pretty crazy. I actually should look into what happened to this, but – 
there was one week when they needed him to play when it was like really insanely big, like almost the size of a full baseball, definitely bigger than a golf ball. And essentially what the team told him is they needed him to go to the hospital, but they wanted him to play first. And so he had to play in a game Jeez. at tackle in the NFL, and then he went straight to the hospital, and he didn't come out for weeks. He was in there for a couple of weeks sending me pictures of this abscess, and he never played again. Yeah, I've got That's that. Uh, I've mean, got dude. that passage yeah. up in front of me. You wrote, "Harris doesn't reveal many details, except that the main bruise on his shin turned into a hematoma, had to be drained, and then became infected. And when he arrived at Heinz Field for his game against the Chiefs yesterday, the Steelers' doctors told him he should go to the hospital immediately after the game. The team needed him to play first. Yeah, which I mean, that's the NFL. You know, I'm not even saying that." I'm not saying that that's even that unique, you know, like I don't, I wouldn't even paint the Steelers as that far outside the realm of normal other than like normal to you and me, because to me, that's a insane thing to ask somebody to know that they're going to go to the hospital. And, you know, he was in, in the hospital room for a long time. He never played football again. And the last thing he did was play hurt for his team. And, you know, that's, I think closer to the norm than people would ever think, you know, for yes. NFL players and, yeah. yeah, they had to drain the hematoma. He needed a skin graft, and then I think there was an infection in there as well uh, after the procedure. So he was in there for weeks, and there was a scene where, um, you know, his wife brings their kids, I think, into the hospital bed, you wrote, and the kid, like, jumps into bed and kind of says, like, look, I'm hurt like daddy. And then, you know, I think you asked him, is it worth it? And his response kind of jumped out to me, and he said, it's totally worth it because now my kids have college funds. And then you pair that with this other line from Forsett where you wrote that he continues to chase pain because that means he's still working. It's like, it's weird to think about it because you always hear, oh, you know, I, I don't care what my health is like in my 40s and 50s because I'm making all this money now and I'll take care of my family. And we hear that a lot. But then when you compare those sentiments with specific injuries that guys are going through and what they're ex exactly dealing with in order to get those game checks that will help their family, it's it's weird to think about. And, uh, you know, all of them, I think if you asked them, would you do it again when they're 50 and 60 years old, I bet the overwhelming majority would say yes. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what Forsett is saying is, like, the minute that he's not hurt anymore is the minute he's out of the league, you know? And, like, coming to grips with that is just as hard as trying to fight through it, you know, even if you're getting cut and released and bounced around. I remember, not to jump around too much, but I remember um, when I covered the Jets for the New York Times, I wrote about Chris Jenkins a lot. He was a great guy. I loved him, man. He didn't nose tackle, big, you know, 2001, 02. You could argue he was the best defensive player in football he was that dominant you know he could like slap a guy away from him using one arm you know like a big 320 pound man he could do that too and one time he let me watch him get surgery acl surgery after he tore it for the second time he would end up having three tears and i remember being in the room when they put him under and i was with his dad and his wife and he looks at all of us and he says sometimes i don't know why i play football and then they put him under and you know cut him open and to me that this is the NFL. You know, I try to write a lot of stories like that because I think it's, it, it helps show these guys as more human than, than we usually do. You know, they're not these sort of superhero figures. They're real people that deal with real pain who play a game that, you know, probably shouldn't exist. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, if we reasonably looked at football and what it does to people, there's, it's hard to conclude other than if you're going to argue that they take the risk themselves and that they, so they, they therefore they can deal with, everything that comes out of taking that risk. If that's your argument, okay, fine. You know, not a very empathetic or 
human sort of look at it. But like, other than that, it's hard to look at football and think this is a thing that should be done. I mean, it just chews up these guys and spits them out. And, you know, I still keep in touch with all those guys. And Cam Jordan's obviously a great player. And Allen Robinson had a great season last year. But the other two are like, you know, they're out and they miss it, to your point. I think they, Forsett and Harris would be back in tomorrow if they could. Yeah, I totally believe that. And, you know, I never got to watch a player go through surgery when I was in Green Bay. But my knee surgeon when I was in Green Bay, I had two surgeries over the course of four seasons there, not playing seasons, but just a marker of time. Um, yeah, was the, the Packers team doctor, Pat McKenzie. And one of the stories that I never got to finish because I ended up leaving Green Bay for another job was he let me follow him around the operating room for a day. Now, he didn't operate on any football players that day, but he had woken up at like 6 a.m. or whatever, and he goes over to Lambeau Field, and he meets with the players in the training room, and then he hustles across town to the hospital. And then from like, I think the first surgery ended up being maybe like 7.30 in the morning or something like that, and I was with him from you know, 7.15 in the morning until, I don't know, 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock at night, whenever his day stopped. And in between those, you know, 8 or 9 hours that I was with him, he did, I think, 12 surgeries or 11 surgeries, some shoulders, some knees, one ACL. And it was just crazy, like, talking about what his day is like and how he relates to an NFL team and how important, you know, his opinion is, even though, you know, he's never been a coach, obviously, never been a scout, none of that stuff. But he was telling me about the Combine and how these guys go through their medicals at the Combine. And I'm sure football fans who follow Twitter and all that see all the news about medicals and things. But he was explaining kind of how it worked and just how much health matters to the league. And so if Greg Bishop is a a left tackle and he's a first-round pick or first-round caliber player, then the team doctors from every single team in the league will take turns pulling on your arms and legs and rotating your shoulders and manipulating your knees during the physical portion of the combine because you are so valuable as a first-round pick that every single doctor in the league wants to get his or her hands on the player specifically because they trust their own opinions to give them back to the team. And then you go to the other end of the draft, and he said if you're a kicker, that's at the combine or a punter or maybe a guy that's like a a borderline seventh rounder undrafted free agent he said they'll take maybe one or two or three doctors from the league they will pull and do the same manual exams that they did for every other player but then the reports from those three doctors will be circulated to the entire league and teams will just take them at their word because they don't need to invest as much time and effort into a seventh round pick or a kicker or a free agent as they did a first round pick and i always thought it was fascinating like you know, we get so tired of cliches as sports writers, but the best avail- the best ability is availability is the one that, to me, sticks true over and over and over again because I've never covered another sport where that is more valid. Yeah, absolutely. And to me, that, that that's what separates truly elite players often is like, can they get on the field and still perform at a high level when they're hurt because they'll all be hurt. So you see guys that are really great in the first half of the season that don't carry or sustain that sort of momentum into the second half. You know, I, I did our next cover story. It'll be on DeAndre Hopkins. It'll be out in a week and a half or something like that. And he's only missed two meaning, meaningless week 17 games in seven seasons. But it's crazy to hear him talk about ankle that needed tightrope surgery, which is like one of the most gnarliest surgeries you can get. You know, he played most of the 2018 season with an ankle that would need that kind of surgery. And he had 1,500 receiving yards. I mean, that's insane. And, you know, it's just these guys are not – guys like we are you know like i mean well i mean you had acl and came back but you know i think i'd be like lying around the house for six weeks crying <laughs> you know uh if i wanted you know 
if I had any any sort of uh, little pain. If, yeah, in fact, my biggest, most recent injury was a broken pinky toe that I clipped on the doorway of my office. So that should give you a good idea of my, my uh, pain tolerance and threshold right there. Well, how, how does the um, how, how does the injury standpoint of a team's you know week to week basis influence what goes on with coaches? And and if you can parlay that into your story on the Vikings that you wrote uh, two years ago, that all access where you visited them and had you know behind the scenes looks at what was going on you know a few different weeks throughout the season. How does like the injury situation influence how much coaches can and can't do on a weekly basis from when you observe their meetings and their their game planning and watching film and all that kind of stuff yeah to me that's a really good pivot because the vikings you know basically decided a couple years ago that they were going to do everything they could to make sure their players were recovered and healthy that that was going to be as much of an emphasis for them as strength training which i think you see all over the place in in sports and in the nfl like it's really become a bigger more sort of almost cottage industry but you know the vikings players have a nutrition bar where they get all sorts of recovery stuff i remember taking turmeric turmeric shots with everson griffin you know which are they're disgusting if you if you never had one Sounds they terrible. like taste, yeah they taste like they'll like burn your eyes but they are supposed to aid in reducing inflammation so these guys have all sorts of stuff at their disposal like that. They have a nutritionist on staff who competed for, I want to say, East Germany in the Olympics, um, definitely an Eastern Europe country. Uh, they have a tr- they have a cryotherapy room. I remember doing cryotherapy with Dalvin Cook. Uh, this was when he was hurt all of that year. And I remember, you know, him and I, like, shivering through this in this metal freezer together at minus 240 degrees or whatever. And I just remember, like, the emphasis they put on it. And that year... While it was super uneven, they ended up not making the playoffs. The story wasn't what they hoped it would be. But they did, I think, um, really reduce their injury rate. You know, Adam Thielen played the whole year. He had had some injuries. Everson Griffin played the whole year. He was battling some stuff. You know, um, Kirk Cousins stayed healthy to protect their investment. And I think that what you're seeing now is, you know, teams that can do that can, you know, we're looking at most teams in the NFL, you know, finishing six wins to 10 wins, that kind of range. You see just a lot of teams sort of in between right in the middle. And the difference between an eight and eight season and a playoff team is often like, could they stay healthy enough to have their best players in the field more? Or did they play teams at the right time when they're, when they didn't have their quarterback? I mean, so much of the NFL is dictated by who's healthy and for how long. And, I think a team like the Vikings is as impressive a group as I've ever seen in terms of, you know, just uh, how they approach it, how they leave no stone unturned. And even that won't protect them from, you know, look at Tom Brady. I mean, I've written a lot about his process. I've had my own body coach before. Didn't work, obviously. But, um, (laughs) you know, like even a guy like him, if somebody runs into your knee, your knee's going to collapse and you're going to miss the whole season, you know. So you could do everything in the world to be ready and to recover and, to start your own business in terms of recovery techniques and still miss an entire year from a fluke accident. That's football too. And so I think what teams are doing now is saying we'll do everything we can because if we don't, we're losing games we don't have to lose. So one of the reasons I wanted to discuss this story is because a lot of times friends and family members or even other writers will ask me of all the different sports I've covered over the years from NFL, college basketball, college football, NBA, whatever. What was the most interesting season from a a journalistic perspective that you've been a part of? And I still say my senior year at Syracuse where, you know, I was writing for the Daily Orange and, and you did the same when you came through Syracuse. 
the football team my senior year started out 5-2, and two, and Doug Marone was the coach before they went on to the NFL, and he took, like, his whole staff with him. They had... Uh, I think that was they still had Ryan Nassib at quarterback. They had Chandler Jones, Justin Pugh. So they had some NFL caliber guys in that program at the time. And they started out 5-2. and two. And so it was, you know, for a football team that had been basically dilapidated for, you know, since Donovan McNabb was really there, to be 5-2 and two and be one game away from a bowl game with several games left on the schedule was a huge deal. So from 5-2, and two, they lost every game the rest of the season, just completely went off a cliff didn't make a bowl game. And to me, that was the most interesting season to cover because you have the highs, the lows, the decline, trying to fix the decline, and then the ultimate bottoming out. Now, the reason I bring that up is because the constant battle between journalists and teams and players or organizations is for more and more access. We want to be taken behind the scenes. They don't want to bring us behind the scenes because of the risks in their mind associated with it. Now, the Vikings, I'm sure, agreed to this story for a number of different reasons, but part of it was they thought they were going to be really good. They had just signed Kirk Cousins. They had this brand-new facility that they wanted to show off. Um, They had the stadium, which was relatively new. They had all the pieces in place to potentially have a season that they thought could end with a deep run toward a Super Bowl, if not win a Super Bowl. Obviously, it went the other way. As you mentioned, they finished 8-7-1, and missed the playoffs. What was it like to be on the inside and see a team go from thinking they're one of the best in the league to not even making the playoffs? And how would you describe the difference between what it would be like to cover that from the outside versus being on the inside and actually hearing what coaches truly think away from the podium, away from the microphones and cameras and all those types of things? Yeah, it was really interesting, actually, because, you know, essentially, like, you're almost watching two different stories. Like, I was reading the clips every day, and then then you're, like, understanding how they feel beyond what, out there in the public and it's like two different universes in some way you know this was a team where the offensive coordinator and the head coach weren't getting along that's you know Mike Zimmer and John DeFilippo and you know there was an issue with how much John was calling pass plays there was an issue with they weren't establishing the run enough but in some ways John was hamstrung like Dalvin Cook was hurt that year the the center had been injured at the beginning of camp and he was done for the season Uh, they hadn't replaced a lineman who had left and so you know, he didn't have as much at his disposal to run the ball. And then they get, they got upgraded linemen and let Cook loose, and he did great. And everybody said the problem was the play caller, but that doesn't factor in all these things that come up, you know, upon winning a game. And so it was just interesting to, like, you know, I would talk to John in his office, and he would show me tape of things that were successful, and he would, you know, express frustration, and he would shut the door. And, you know, it was just you could feel the sort of building. And then – I was with them in Seattle, like, you know, before their game against the Seahawks, you know, it was a Monday night. It was, the season was on the line. If they won, they were going to have a chance to win their division and get in. And I try to really bring out some empathy when I write about them because, you know, to watch Rick Spielman is like one of the most thorough, detailed, smart human beings I've ever come across in this job. And to see him like try to hold that together, to continue making moves, added a kicker in the middle of the year that, added Aldrich Robinson in the middle of the year that, you know, it just his job never ends. And to see him fight so hard for that and come so close to like putting a team together that could compete. And, you know, you saw even last year with the same team, they went and beat Drew Brees in New Orleans in the playoffs. And, you know, it's just, I think you get a different viewpoint. Like I was able to really see him as a human being. And that led to my uh, favorite detail of the story, which is that he puts his uh, <laughs> shoes on before his pants, uh, which I still don't know logistically like how you do that, but, you know, uh, respect, <laughs> I guess, if you can pull it off. 
It's like uh, one of those moves when you get, you know, when you're trying to do something and you're hungover from the night before and you accidentally put one thing on in the wrong order and, and then you realize that it's impossible and you trip over and fall on your bed and hope that nobody's watching. You know, we've all been there before, but apparently Spielman has perfected it. So that's pretty, uh, that, that's pretty interesting. Um, you know, I, I guess one of the other areas that I wanted to talk about with you and, and kind of shifting gears a little bit is that I think some of the, the strongest work throughout your career has been in, in boxing. And that's a, a sport that you've covered for a long, long time, especially at the New York Times. You did a ton of it and, and also at Sports Illustrated as well. Um, but I, I guess, how would you sort of juxtapose or sort of compare the the violence of covering boxing, which is literally about punching people in the face and trying to knock them unconscious, versus the violence of covering the NFL and watching guys smash each other, but without punching and without necessarily trying to knock each other uncon- unconscious? Yeah, that's a really good question, because uh, I may I feel the way that I feel I think is a little bit different than I think the typical person would feel, and I I sort of look at them in a similar way, whereas I think most people would look at boxing as more violent, you know, more viscerally violent than the NFL. I think there's a real argument to be made though that NFL players are weaponized, that their helmets are weapons, that the damage they inflict is harsher as a result, and that just because it's glorified in a way that it's packaged to make it look exciting and sleek and, you know, heavily marketed that we tend to sort of explain away NFL violence where we wouldn't for boxing, you know, and, you know, I think they're both uh, very dangerous. I think it's, it can be hard to cover both of them. I find myself arguing internally with myself a lot in terms of whether I should be, you know, sort of, um, you know, part of the glorification of these things. And, you know, I, I think, one thing about a boxing match that's really interesting when you're up close is just how violent it is. You know, the sound of somebody hitting someone else in the face with a 12 ounce glove is way more of a thud than you would think. And, you know, I was ringside when Juan Manuel Marquez knocked out Manny Pacquiao. I'll just never forget that moment. You know, here's this guy in the front row standing there with his hands out. Like he wants to catch Manny as he falls to the canvas and he's, he's not awake. You know, I'm, I, I saw Paul Williams get knocked out by Sergio Martinez in Atlantic City where he would just went limp and went out. You know, I, I fortunately have never covered a fight where somebody died, but I've watched him. Oh, you know, actually, that's wrong. I was I was in New York City in the Garden when Mago, the Russian heavyweight, was killed that night. Yeah, I was definitely there. And, you know, those are the kind of things that stick with you. And I think that uh, I don't think it's it's unreasonable though that an NFL player will die on an NFL field, that it would that it will come from a savage hit and that you know, I think both things are things we need to think about in terms of like whether we want people to do that anymore. Because, you know, yes, they are assuming the risk. Yes, they are grown adults. But in both sports, you see, you know, a lot of violence. You see a very strong impact and toll. And, you know, there's part of me every day that wonders whether I should be writing about something else. Well, you wrote a column about Mago or sort of an analysis piece about that situation. And one of the sources in the story was Bernard Hopkins, another name that fight fans might recognize. And a lot of the, the story was kind of focused on on you sort of asking Hopkins, why do guys box? And Hopkins trying to get you to understand why, but realizing that civilians will never really grasp it. And so I'm curious if you've ever asked football players why they play football and then boxers why they box. And are there any similarities in the answers between those two? 
Yeah, definite similarities. You know, I think there are a lot of guys that would say they just love the sport, that they would do it regardless of the danger level, that they are built differently than people like me, a.k.a. softer, uh, <laughs> you know, flabbier human beings. And, you know, I think you get a lot of, like, I love football or I do it for my family or what else would I be doing? I think you've definitely, especially in boxing, seen a real socioeconomic shift there. You know, the kids that box now tend to be from, you know, more disadvantaged backgrounds. They tend to be pocketed in parts of the U.S. where fighting is more encouraged. They tend to be, you know, kids who may not have a lot of, lot, another, a lot of other options. And so what you see a lot is people saying, you know, boxing has saved more lives than it takes. That personally, that sentiment makes me very uncomfortable because Agreed. it's sort of a zero, zero sum look at that, you know, like, like they couldn't have done anything else and been successful, uh, that they couldn't have poured the same things that make them a great boxer, the drive, the passion, the hand-eye coordination into something else. I think that's a very limited sort of viewpoint, but I understand where people are going with it. And so, you know, I do, I do think you see a lot of um, sort of similar you know, mindsets. And I do think that you're going to see football move in a more socioeconomic direction where more disadvantaged kids are the ones playing it and where if you go to a Tony High School in suburban Austin, you maybe you're not playing quarterback the way that Drew Brees did. Maybe you're playing tennis the way that Drew Brees did or shifting into other sports. I think you're going to see that more and more as it becomes clear that football is just as damaging as boxing, if not more so. You know, the, the funniest thing about the essay that you mentioned, if you'll allow for a quick aside here, is sure. that I discussed it with Dave, Dave Chappelle in China. Uh, so I went to him after this was at a Pacquiao fight. Chappelle is a huge fight fan. He's at all the fights. And I went up to him after the fight because I saw him in the press room, and I introduced myself. And he introduced me to a couple of his kids who were with him, and we were just kind of rapping about boxing. And then I told him what I did and asked if I could interview him about Pacquiao, who had just beaten... I want to say Chris Algieri. Yeah, because that was that was Macau, right? Yeah, that was Algieri. Yeah, and so he looks. Yeah, Chappelle looks at me. He says, "I don't want to pontificate about boxing to somebody who pontificates about boxing." And then he goes, <laughs> "But I did read that story from the writer in the Times the other day about covering boxing." And of course, like a true loser that I am, I'm like, "Oh, I wrote that story." You know, hey, that was me. And uh, he sort of laughed and he said he liked it. And I had got this all on tape, and I saved the recorder for like as long. As as I was gonna save it forever, and then one day I lost it on a flight, which makes me sad because I used to like play it for people when they came over. You know, uh, <laughs> it was a, it was a little moment of fanboy fandom from me, and so uh, yeah, that was the time that I met Dave Chappelle. Anyway, quick diversion. I think I think one of the most jarring experiences I've had in sports writing was something that that you kind of prepared me for a little bit, which is when I was in Memphis and I was working at the Commercial Appeal. Um, I flew to Las Vegas and I visited Floyd Mayweather's gym for a couple of days because one of the younger fighters under his promotion label under his stable was a kid that was from Memphis. Um, his name was Ladarius Miller. He's still fighting there now. He's actually doing really well. Um, you know, probably has a chance to at least be in the discussion for a title fight someday if he doesn't actually get one in the uh, in his division. And and so I flew out there, and, and he was really young at the time. He was probably 20. I was maybe, I don't know, 23 or something. So we were close in age, but he was really young in terms of boxing and, and all that. And and the, the, the sort of 
the economic differences between people who are trying to make it in boxing, even somebody that has been signed to a promotion like he was, a big promotion, the money team, Floyd Mayweather's group, and then Floyd himself, who happened to come into the gym at the end of the day for a training session. I think he was getting ready maybe for the second Maidana fight or something. I can't remember exactly, but he comes in and you know, there's there's Lamborghinis outside the gym, and he's got his four or five security guards that you've written about that add up to like 1,700 pounds of person. And, you know, he's got four different people massaging him, one on each arm, one on each leg. And, and it's just like the the, the difference, and, and you can say this about every sport, you know, the, the LeBron James is going to be different than the guy that's on a 10-day contract. But I think in boxing, it always stood out to me a little bit more because the guys that are at the lower level, are not getting the money, not getting the opulence, not getting the fame, the recognition, the material wealth, and they're still destroying their bodies and they're still taking the punishment and all that. So as somebody who spent a lot of time around Floyd, a lot of time around Manny Pacquiao, what was it like to kind of see boxing in the the, the smallest portion of the absolute finest 1% you can possibly be? And then kind of you see the other end of it, the undercard of all these fights that you covered, where there's guys that you know might be making maybe a thousand dollars a fight. Yeah, you know it's a really interesting dichotomy because what you see a lot is guys that are really struggling. You know, even like big name promoters don't make a ton of money unless they're getting fighters on HBO or Showtime. Back when HBO did boxing, but you know, you see so many of these club fights and even so many of these TV deals where there's no money involved at all. And then you see these huge fights, you know, the biggest fights in boxing where there's more money than anywhere else in sports. You know, one one story that my editor, one of my editors wanted me to do during the Corona time was like, will coronavirus kill boxing? And I just that's a, to me a terrible idea on its face. Sorry to the editor. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like the, boxing is not going to die when you can still make three hundred million dollars in a night. You know, you can't do that anywhere else in sports, including at the Super Bowl in the NFL, you know, and I think that, you know, the economics of boxing are still bigger than people think, which is what sustains the sport, even though its popularity has gone down. The issue, in my opinion, is one of many boxing issues, and it's that all the money is funneled to the very top of the pyramid. So the best promoters have, you know, you go to interview Bob Arum at his house in Los Angeles, and there's a butler serving you fruit, you know, and the, you know, go, you go to talk to Mayweather, and He's got so many cars in his house that they're giving him parking tickets because he can't fit them all in his huge freaking garage. And I think that, you know, um, I think that the economics are skewed in a way that's not very fair, you know. But what you'll see is, a, you know, a fight where the main card might be over a million dollars or $10 million in purses if it's really big. And then, you know, the the guy on the undercard's making 30 grand or whatever to get beat up, you know, or, or, or done early. And so... You know, the economic realities in boxing are pretty stark. They make it hard to really, you know, sustain a, a business and a stable unless you get, unless you hit on guys that are going to fight big. And then the minute they, the one thing that bothers me about that economic reality is the minute they get close to being interesting or really good, they start putting them on pay-per-view. And you're seeing that even now with a guy like, you know, Errol Spence on pay-per-view that like, you know, we should have a few more years of just really enjoying watching him have big fights that are on regular pay television and so uh you know it's interesting to see a guy like Manny Pacquiao who has somebody at his side at his house cutting his meat for breakfast you know because god forbid he'd use a knife and a fork in his own hands and you know then you go to like watch you know 
I did a story last year on this Cuban boxer that defected and, you know, he's training at a gym in Tampa where, you know, like he's buying his own Gatorade and, you know, he probably can't afford it. And, you know, I just think that if there was a way to redistribute some of that money, it would be great. And in the interim, what you have is a sport where there's a couple of haves and a whole bunch of have nots. How did you try and balance as a reporter the stardom and and necessity of covering Floyd Mayweather because writers don't pick who the stars are and who is relevant and and who makes it to the top of the pyramid and then understanding and investigating and looking into and balancing all of the the negatives that are attached to Floyd Mayweather from some of the things that he says that are off color or or inappropriate to the more serious you know domestic violence issues that that he's been involved in what was that like trying to balance those two things of giving guy giving a guy coverage because he is part of events that warrant coverage versus a guy that has done so much negative or has done so many negative things that it, you probably wouldn't cover him if if you were just choosing guys you know out of a lineup yeah, you know, I think the biggest thing for me was to always write honestly and to try to write about all of it, you know. So I wrote columns comparing Floyd to Ray Rice when all the Ray Rice stuff went down and that, like, Ray Rice lost his job essentially fairly, of course, for what he did. But what you've seen with um, Floyd is he was able to continue fighting even when he was on the precipice of going to jail. So, you know, I wrote about him on the eve of jail where I went to talk to him about what it was like going in. I wrote about um him and how he fought on other occasions i wrote about how he changed the financial structure for boxers taking in the same money that promoters used to i wrote about all of it and you try to sort of be fair in every instance to not only him but also the people that he hurt the lives that he irrevocably damaged and you know to look at ways that he might have changed it if at all you know and so some of the stuff he did in terms of you know how he handled the domestic violence, you know, wasn't great. You know, when he talked about, you know, that there were no bruises on the woman that had accused him or any number of these things, like you have to write all that too. And I think uh, going at it was not always easy. And it definitely, you know, sometimes we were criticized depending on which way we wrote. I think I've been criticized for ignoring uh, the domestic violence. I've been criticized for writing about it. And I've been criticized for writing about it too often. So to me, I think you cross every base there and, the biggest thing I think is not to ignore it. You definitely don't want to um, fall into the trap where you're not addressing it. And yet I do think that you also want to write about him and his career and those things factor into the context of those stories. And so, you know, I think it's all a part of who he is and what he became and, you know, how he, be- how he handled being one of the best fighters in the world. And I think when you add all that up in total, you've got a complex picture, you know. The other thing I would say is, a lot of times other writers would say things like, how can you write about Floyd Mayweather? How would you write about him? It's, I think we're vastly overestimating some of the people we write about. You know, you see a lot of a lot of guys who just sort of have these sterling reputations in terms of the stories that get written about them that seem are made to be more than, more than normal people that seem flawless. That I think most everyone we write about is pretty flawed. And I think that they're, most people in sports are pretty flawed human beings, just like everybody else. And, you know, I think it's a mistake to think just because a guy got arrested that he's so much worse than other people. Like I always say, that there are things about Pacquiao that bother me too. You know, his stance on gay rights, his right. uh, alignment with Duterte, the president of the Philippines, uh, is a human rights abuser. Like there are things about everyone we write about that I think are unsettling. And 
probing them and looking into them and talking to Manny about how he, you know, came to th- these kind of politics. I think that's useful too, even if it's uncomfortable and not always just about how great somebody is. As somebody who has covered, you know, Super Bowls, the Olympics, major prize fights, national championships for college basketball, college football, you know, a lot of the biggest events that people watch on television. Uh, one of the lines that you wrote in that essay you referenced earlier about Mago, the Russian heavyweight, was that still, after covering all of those things and experiencing the buildup, the the event itself, and the fallout from some of these these biggest games in, in our country and in the world when it comes to the Olympics and tennis majors and other things, you you wrote that you still think the, the 30 seconds before a prize fight begins is, is some of the most interesting and compelling time frames in, in all of sports. And, and from a, a revenue and pay-per-view and and just sort of you know, awareness standpoint, you've covered, I think, the two biggest fights in, in boxing history, which would be Pacquiao and Mayweather finally fighting, albeit several years too late, but that's another podcast. And then also the Conor McGregor-Floyd Mayweather, you know, fight, uh, you covered that as well. And so why is it that you think these these super fights are so compelling to, to fans? And why is that, that first 30 seconds, or excuse me, the 30 seconds preceding the opening bell, why does that fascinate you so much as, as somebody who chronicles all kinds of sports? That's a great question. Uh, just to clarify, I did not cover the Mayweather-McGregor fight, but that's only because Blake was born the day after. Oh, but you covered I did the build-up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, what yeah. Was. I even Sorry. went on McGregor's plane from Toronto to New York. And, you know, I would say that, like, to me what boxing does really well, because we always kill boxing for all the things it doesn't do well, and there are many of them, but... The thing that boxing does really well, I think, is to build up to big, big events. Like, they make you feel like both fighters can win. They make you feel like everyone in the world has stopped to watch this thing. To me, Wilder Fury, too, was a great example. It just felt like a star-studded event. And it was, you have these backstories. Like, let's look at Mayweather Pacquiao, right? You've got six years of stalled negotiations. So six years of these guys going back and forth. Six years when we're hoping that they fight each other. You've got celebrities who are relatively famous who can't get tickets because that's how many requests there are. We did a story on the tickets and how they had to be moved with armed security guards, you know, like into a vault because that's how serious people were about trying to make sure that they weren't stolen. You know, you have two guys that were two of the best fighters of an era who happened to be fighting at the same time, who often fought the same people, who often had the same results. You had a contrast in styles with a defensive specialist and an attacking one, and you have months and months and months of them talking about the same fight. You know, I wrote ad nauseum about it. They moved Chris Mannix and I to Las Vegas for a full month. I went to Mayweather's gym like 25 days in a row, and I just wrote, wrote, wrote. You know, um, I even saw an attempted, I saw Chuck, the Zab Judah chasing Chop Chop Corley down the street with a knife after they got into a little Jeez. scrap at the gym. And, you know, you just have all this stuff that goes into that, that 30 seconds. So, it's just nothing like sitting in that arena, knowing that finally this, these storylines are going to be settled, the debate's going to be answered. I love when Pacquiao comes down to my absolute favorite. Sorry about that. I think my earbuds cut out. Oh, can you hear me better now? Yep, and, we're good. Yeah, and so, um, you know, I, I just think that, like, you, you're finally at this moment of anticipation. You know the bell's about to ring. Everyone's going crazy. The arena is packed. And there's just nothing like the adrenaline that comes through like right at that moment. It will make you forget every misgiving that you have about boxing in those 30 seconds. And then you'll remember them, you know, when somebody gets hurt or the next day down the line. And so 
to me, that's the appeal to it is they make their biggest events feel like the Super Bowl. They do that better than the Final Four. They do that better than the NBA Finals. They do it better than anything else in sports. They really have a feel of like this is rare and unique and I want to watch it even if it costs me more money and I don't really want to spend. And to me, that's still the enduring appeal of boxing. When they don't, when they lose the major events, when Wilder Fury 2 doesn't feel the way that Wilder Fury 2 felt, when a guy like Conor McGregor goes off the rails, it's terrible for the UFC because they need that kind of star power beyond just their regular fights. And, you know, I just think that it's hard to replicate that sort of feeling. Two guys going down alone, no teammates, you know, ready to rumble. Like, I think, you know, if you're alive and have a heartbeat and, you know, don't have too many misgivings, it's hard not to feel an emotion in that moment. And that's the best part of sports, the emotion, the the anticipation that this could be really cool kind of deal. And then, you know, seeing somebody like Fury go out and fight the way he did, like that was exciting too. So like then, then something like that lives up to the hype. I've uh, I've gotten really into mixed martial arts in the UFC over the years. Some of my friends and I have, have really b- become fascinated with it. And probably because, you know, boxing, other than, you know, Mayweather and Pacquiao, there haven't been as many big stars in the last few years, ex- aside from those two heavyweights that you mentioned. And, and I think, you know, my, as my interest shifted to UFC, you know, Conor McGregor became the, um, you know, the lightning rod for all things good, bad, and indifferent about fighting. And so you mentioned in passing that that you had the opportunity to spend some time with him on a private plane during the build-up and in route from one press conference to another when they did sort of the world tour, the mini world tour for the, the Mayweather-McGregor fight. What was your impression of, of him and, and just kind of, you know, that would be a situation I would think where a guy is crossing over sports from mixed martial arts to pure boxing. He's getting ready to face a guy that is, um, you know, unquestionably among the best ever and, you know, maybe the best ever at what he does in particular in terms of defensive fighting and Floyd Mayweather, but he knows he's going to get a massive payday out of it. And so whether he wins, whether he loses, he's going to be a very, very rich man. And so what was that like to kind of, you know, talk to a guy that I know he said he thinks he was going to win, but I don't think anybody really thought he was going to. Yeah, you know, that was, this is actually kind of a funny story if you allow me to belabor quickly. Sure. Uh, you know, if people remember, that was like a really amped up like press conference, a series of press conferences. Like there was, you know, McGregor and Mayweather felt almost like a rap battle. They were going back and forth. There were a lot of jokes. Some of it was super tasteless, but it, it was like better at the beginning and it got worse as it went on. McGregor even kept making fun of Steven Espinoza, the head of Showtime, calling him Little Weasel and stuff. It was pretty intense for a while. And so the, the time that I rode with him was from Toronto to New York. And when I was in Toronto, for some reason, my phone stopped working. Like, yeah, I must not have had, you know, the service turned on or whatever. And so I was getting texts sitting in the media section, watching them yell at each other from the USC saying that I needed to get to the car. Or I would miss Connor and I wouldn't be able to go catch him at the airport. At this point in time, I had a broken pinky toe and I was wearing a walking boot on my left foot, which I clipped the toe on my office in the morning because I'm that talented and coordinated. And <laughs> So I get outside afterward, and I've missed McGregor. He has left. You know, he has sped away in the car. I had no idea this happened because I couldn't get by all the fans. We're going down. They're coming up. And I basically was, like, screwed. Like, the, I saw Dana White. He was like, you know, you got to get to this airport. It's in Hamilton. Hamilton, by the way, is, like, 45 minutes from Toronto. It's closer to the U.S. and Buffalo. And I don't know what to do. So I, I start, like, limping out on my broken toe with the boot on my foot. I find the nearest highway because I can't wait in the cab line. And I just flagged down the first cab I saw, but it was like a half a mile down the road. So I'm like running down a highway, 
with my laptop and a boot on my leg trying to get in a taxi cab. <laughs> then I get over to the airport and McGregor is of course not there. He's like went to the hotel. He was hanging out with some friends and the airport won't let me in. And, you know, finally, eventually it all worked itself out. And when I got on the plane, I was struck by McGregor, just sort of how normal he was. Like he was just like you or me when we drop a story. He was looking at what people were saying online. He was sort of recapping some of his best jokes. He was playing for his crowd. And, you know, um, we talked the whole flight to New York for the story. And I just found him to be pretty down to earth and normal. Now, obviously, he's had some behavior since then that's not down to earth or normal. And, you know, I think there are a lot of sides to all these sort of stars. So I'm, I'm not excusing any of that. But at that point in time, he was really sort of new to the the high, like, top level of fame. And sure. he was really enjoying spar- sparring with Mayweather. And I do believe that they never thought, really, that they could win that fight. I think Floyd carried him pretty well through the first half of it. And, you know, the spectacle was just very interesting and, and super fun to watch. Now, you know, the, the press conferences took a darker turn. There was some misogyny, some racist kind of stuff. Like, you know, I wouldn't, I would condemn all of that. But for a while there, it was pretty fun to watch the two of them go back and forth. You know, two showmen knowing they were doing an event that was more about celebrity than it was about actual fighting, really trying to play up. It was sort of like WWE. That's really interesting. Yeah, I remember watching it thinking that uh, from a spectacle standpoint, fight combat sports would probably not get much better than this. But I, I never really had any... I, I couldn't understand the people who were placing bets, you know, on McGregor thinking that, oh, you know, puncher's chance if he just has this left hand, et cetera, et cetera. And because, I mean, if, if you've spent any time around boxers, and I've spent a very, very small amount relative to you, but probably more than, than the average person, you know, their their speed and their elusiveness, it's, it's different. When you get to Floyd's level, you know, no matter what his age is, he's going to be better at escaping punches and slipping things and shoulder rolls and all that than than you expect so so that was always I never really got that but from a spectacle standpoint I could absolutely see why people were fascinated by it um, we're gonna wrap this up here with a little bit of a rapid-fire session here where I ask you about some of your favorite things that you've you've ever covered because I think that gives a, an interesting perspective so we'll keep it with fighting to start what is the most interesting fight you've ever covered well uh, probably Pacquiao getting knocked out by Marquez just the stakes involved the it being, you know, the third time they'd fought, you know, no definitive ending, a lot of argument back and forth, most definitive ending at all. Also was the fight where Mitt Romney stopped by the locker room. I happened to be inside that night. All-time quote says, uh, Manny, I'm Mitt Romney. I ran for president. I lost. That was one of my all-time favorites. (laughs) That's pretty good. That's pretty good. What is the, your, your favorite Super Bowl that you've covered so far? Uh, probably the uh, second one, Giants, um, Patriots, David Tyree helmet catch. I went to school with Tyree. Uh, funny aside, he, uh, Jeff Passett, myself, and Tyree were in a microeconomics class together, and Tyree used to always drop his pencil. So when he caught the ball, I remember Passett sent me a text and says, if that were a pencil, he would have dropped it. So wow. that was a, a memorable one for me. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. How about your favorite NCAA title game, either football or uh, or basketball, since you've covered both? Uh, the one where Butler lost, I thought was really fun. You know, uh, where Gordon Hayward missed the, but- the long, long-distance buzzer beater. I thought that was a really good one. Uh, college football, maybe. Um, nah, let's go with that one. I thought that was okay. the best. And then last one, we haven't really talked about Olympics or tennis, but you've covered a lot of those all over the world. What's one of your favorite Olympic or tennis moments that you've been a part of? 
Uh, when I covered Wimbledon in 2010, that was the year of the longest ten- tennis match in pro tennis history. So that was really fun. It was like three days of Isner Mahout. I remember I had an A1 story that ran in the New York Times on day two when the match wasn't even over, which tells you how unusual it was. <laughs> and I think I wrote for like six different days. But there was one day where I wrote about England playing in the World Cup from the vantage point of a nearby pub and the longest tennis match. And they were both like sort of disastrous and beautiful in their own ways. You know, people were lighting napkins at the bar on fire when the soccer team was losing. And then, you know, tennis fans were like all crowding around the small side court to watch these two guys play for 11 straight hours. And so that was one of the more surreal days I've had in my career. Very cool. That sounds really fun. I'm, I'm hoping that at some point I get to cover an international event. That's been on my list, but haven't been able to, uh, to check it off yet. But Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to join me. I've, I've taken up more of your day than I was supposed to, so I appreciate that. But it was a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully it was somewhat enjoyable for you too. Anytime, brother. Thank you for having me. So there you have it, a conversation with Sports Illustrated senior writer Greg Bishop. I know we veered away from the NFL for the last 20 minutes or so there into boxing and into some of the other sports that Greg has covered, but he's had so many interesting and unique opportunities around the world that I thought it might be a little bit fun to to hear something just a, a smidgen different than our normal programming. So for those of you who stuck with me all the way to the end, I really appreciate it. As always, you can find episodes of this show available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to podcasts. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, in the iTunes or Apple Podcasts app, because the more positive feedback we get about the show, the more exposure there is in their various algorithms and apps, and then it just becomes easier for me to book some fun guests and hopefully keep this going for as long as possible. So thank you all very, very much for the support. It's been awesome to hear from so many of you so far, and hopefully that continues for quite a while. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon.